I would be remiss if I did not begin this morning's worship service with, or sermon I should say, with saying happy birthday to my daughter Avery. Today is her seventh birthday, so that's special that her birthday falls on a Sunday. And yesterday was her biggest brother's birthday. Peyton turned 16 yesterday. So welcome this morning to our second Advent service, our second Advent sermon. We'll have five Advent services total if you include Christmas Eve. Uh, we're keeping up, you'll remember. Uh, an old Christmas tradition. Historically, many of God's people have made Christmas actually more than a one-day celebration, but a four-week celebration called Advent, which just means arrival, and that's leading up to the actual day of Christmas, which again celebrates the arrival, the Advent, the birth of Jesus Christ. The idea is that during these four weeks of Advent, anticipation builds for Christmas Day, which remembers the centuries during which anticipation built for the first Christmas Day, the day that Christ was born. So we devote the first four Sundays of December to Advent, and we take the traditional themes of hope, which we looked at last week, and love, and joy, and peace, and then our services culminate on Christmas Eve, which you're all invited to on that Monday evening at 6.30 p.m. Remember also, we've put together a little resource for you called Prepare Him Room. It includes devotions and readings and songs and stories and some other resources. They are free to you, so if there are any left, you'll find them on the other side of this short wall. Make sure that you grab one on your way out this morning. There's also a PDF that is available on our website along with some coloring pages for kids. And so you can find that under the resources tab on the, uh, on the website. Avery, I just saw you walk in to the service, and so you missed it, so I'm going to say it again. I said happy birthday to you. So our theme today, our theme today is love, and our text is Luke 2. 1 through 7. Last week, if you were here, we were in Luke chapter 1, and we read the account of the angel visiting Mary and bringing her good news. And this morning, in chapter 2, we'll read the account of the actual birth of Jesus. So last week was the announcement, and this week is the arrival. So in light of our theme here is something the 17th century Puritan theologian John Owen wrote about love. We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. Let me read that one more time. We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. So I've turned that quote into a prayer this morning. That God would help 
all of us to understand His love. That He would help us through the study of His words to find ourselves lost in amazement at His unspeakable love. In other words, God, help us to know You. Help us to understand who You are. Specifically, help us to understand Your love. Because the more we do, the closer we will be to You. And remember, as I preach this sermon, I'll be preaching from this book, this Bible, this Word. And in this Word alone do we have revelation from God. So here alone we learn who we are. Here alone we learn who God is. And most importantly, here alone we learn how we can be reconciled to God. And so whenever God's word is preached with the help of the Holy Spirit, it always results in God's glory and our good. So because we want the Holy Spirit's help today, before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Please bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, as we listen to this sermon, we ask that you would fill our minds with truth. Fill our hearts with desire and move our wills to honor, trust, and obey you. Help us now to understand your love, that we would love you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you if you don't own your own Bible, just take it with you today. But you'll find today's text on page 556. On page 556, you'll find Luke chapter 2. As I said before, our Advent theme today is love. And as we move forward, talking about the love of God, here's something interesting to keep in mind. The love of God, if you think about it, is just about a universally accepted attribute of God. In other words, if, if someone believes in God, they believe in God's love. That's just about a universally accepted attribute of God. Now, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, those all become much more debatable among people who believe in God. But by and large, the love of God is a universally accepted attribute of God. Yet also, it is just about a universally misunderstood attribute of God. In other words, everybody thinks that God is love but not everybody understands what it means to say that God is love. It's not what we might just superficially think. So our prayer, I think, is a good one. Our prayer is a good one, that God would help us. That God would help us through His Word today 
to understand not what I think God's love is, not what you think God's love is, not what anyone thinks God's love is, but what does His Word teach us about His own love? So to do that, before we read the Nativity account, I want to read a verse from 1 John. We're going to complement our sermon text today written by Luke with words written by the Apostle John. And that is because his letter, 1 John, is probably written with more love and affection than any other book in your Bible. In fact, John was known as the Apostle of love. So if in your Bible there is an expert on God's love, you'd have to say it is the Apostle John. John thought a lot about and understood the love of God. He was Jesus' closest friend. He was called by Jesus, and no other disciple was called this, the beloved disciple. Jesus loved him deeply. He was side by side with Jesus. He watched him sweat blood in the garden. John stood fearlessly at the foot of the cross. He received and cared for the mother of Jesus, Mary. He was the first in the empty tomb, even beating Peter. He spent time with the resurrected Jesus, and he watched Jesus ascend into heaven. So he is an expert on Jesus for sure, and he's an expert on the love of God. So we'll read more of his letter today, but, but here's just one verse to read before we jump into Luke. And it's 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. I'll read it to you. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Remember our goal today that we would understand the love of God more deeply. And John, in this verse, has just told us that there is one supreme way that God has shown His love to us. And what is it? God sent His only Son into the world. And what is our text in Luke 2 today about? It is about God sending His only Son into the world. That means that Luke chapter 2, the nativity, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is the very beginning of the story of the love of God for his people. That's what 1 John 4, 9 tells us about what we're reading in Luke chapter 2. The supreme way that God manifests, were John's words, that God shows his love for his people. The supreme way that God shows his love for his people is through the sending of his only son into the world. And we're going to read about God sending his only son into the world. So with that in mind, let's now read Luke 2, 1 through 7. 
I'll pause for just a few comments as we go. But we'll get through these seven verses, and then we'll come back to some verses in 1 John to make sure that we understand as best we can God's love being manifested in this Christmas story. So Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That is, all the world under Roman rule. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. That is, his hometown or his ancestral town. Tracing back his family to its very beginnings. Verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, and he went there, verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So we read about that last week. We read about the announcement. The angel came to Mary, the angel Gabriel, and announced the good news that she was going to have a child. And in other verses, we learn that Joseph was also told, and Joseph planned to divorce his wife quietly, because in those days, an engagement, a betrothal, was the kind of commitment that could only be broken by divorce, unlike today. So all he knew is that Mary, whom he was engaged to, but had never been with, he knew that she was pregnant with someone else's child. It wasn't his child. And so he planned, he was a good man, to divorce her quietly, to not make us think about it, not make a big deal about it, but just to quietly divorce her. So an angel came to Joseph, you remember, and gave him almost the same announcement that was given to Mary. So he's agreed to stay committed to Mary, to stay committed to this child. And so here he is. The word goes out that everyone needs to go back to their hometown to be registered. His hometown is Bethlehem. So he packs up Mary, nine months pregnant, and they head to Bethlehem. Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Poor timing. Poor timing. I don't think you're even, ladies, right? You're not supposed to even travel when you're nine months pregnant. You're supposed to stay close to home, close to the hospital, right? Well, here she is in Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Those were strips of cloth that were used to wrap up babies to keep them warm. Like what you would use a blanket for today. So she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and then you're familiar with this detail, and she laid him where? She laid him in a manger. A manger is not a crib. A manger is not a bassinet. A manger is not, some of you will know what this is, a pack and play. That's not what a manger is. A manger is a feeding trough. 
We actually baptize people here in a manger, <laughs> in a feeding trough. You know, we're not a fancy church. We don't have a fancy building. We don't have a baptismal. So for those of you who don't know, when we have baptisms here, we had to figure out, well, how are we going to baptize people? We're going to baptize people. We need to immerse them. Some churches just sprinkle people. That'd be a lot easier for us, but we don't believe in that. I believe the mode of baptism is you've got to fully immerse someone. So we're looking around. Sink? That's not going to work. So we had to figure something out. So we talked to other churches that were starting out. And what do you do if you don't have a baptismal? Well, this is what you do. You go down to the farm supply store. What do you go down to the farm supply store for? And you buy a, you buy a manger. You buy a big trough used to water horses. So that's what we have. It's about eight feet long, a couple feet deep, a couple feet wide. It's special. It's special to us. Well, special to the baby Jesus. They're not in a hotel. They're not in an inn. They're not in a hospital. So there's not the typical place to lay this little newborn baby. So they make best of what they have. And Mary laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. They tried to find a better place, apparently. There wasn't a better place. Remember, this is all God's timing. Who's in charge of all this? Who decides who's going to be born and when he's going to be born and where he's going to be born? The angel came and predicted most of that. And when it comes down to the actual day of the birth of Jesus, this is God's doing. The timing is God's doing. The place is God's doing. It wasn't an accident. God didn't think that the hotels and inns weren't going to be booked, but there was a flood of people coming into town, and so it didn't go as planned. Everything, in terms of God's sovereignty, always goes as planned. That's in your life too, by the way. It always goes as planned. And if you're a believer, it always goes in a way that is ultimately for your good and for God's glory. So this was according to plan. It was the plan that, that God would come and be born a man in the most humblest possible way. So they lay in a manger because there's no place for them in the end. So that is, that is Luke's very simple and humble account of the greatest miracle in history. This is the greatest miracle in history, bar none undisputed. There have been some great miracles. There are some great accounts of miracles in our Bible. But this is by far the greatest miracle of all time, God being born a man. Now let's go back to 1 John. So that's, that's Luke chapter 2. That is the nativity. And let's go back now to 1 John. It would be good for you to follow along. I don't know the page number, but if you'll turn to 1 John, I'm going to read chapter 4, verse 9 again, but this time also with verse 10. And keep in mind what we just read. We just read the account of God sending His Son to be born into the world. So John, the apostle of love, 
Well, what do you say about that? So verse, verse 9, again. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And now verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, there's that phrase again, sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John says, here is the ultimate manifestation of love. Here is the supreme manifestation of love. In this is love. Those are his words. In this, what I'm about to tell you about, he says, in this is love. Not it's a loving thing. It's a loving story. It's an example of love. No, in this is love. Like this is the foundation and base for all love. And it's not, he says, our love for God. Lest you think, lest I think that when we think of love, our love for God. How, how well we love God. How great is our love for God. No, not our love for God, but God's love for us. In this is love. God's love for us shown through what? The sending of his son. Into the world, John says, to be the propitiation for our sins. So let's break that down. According to these verses, God has manifested his love or shown his love, displayed his love, expressed his love, demonstrated his love. It says the same thing. God has manifested His love by sending His Son. Told that in verse 9. But not only that, sending His only Son. Sending His Son would be loving. Sending His only Son, that's more loving. Not only that, sending His only Son into the world for us. Verse 9 into the world so that we might live through Him. So this is, this is love. God sending His Son, not only that. God sending His only Son, not only that. God sending His only Son into the world for us, not only that. Verse 10, sending His only Son into the world, and here is love, to be the propitiation. For our sins. We can all I think. See how those first three. Manifest love. But that fourth one. Might take some thinking. Because it includes a word that. Most of us don't use very often. Maybe many of us don't even know what it means. One of these. Big words in the Bible with big meaning. Propitiation. 
We've got to find out what that means. Because John says about Luke chapter 2, that this is all part of this great love story of Jesus being born into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. And so we won't understand how great God's love is if we don't understand that word. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, probably the most famous book J.I. Packer ever wrote. We sell it here in our bookstore. If you haven't read it, read that book. But G.I. Packer said, has the word propitiation any place in your Christianity? That's a great question. So there's probably a lot of big words and we don't know what they mean. There's big words I still don't know what they mean. But if there's a big word that you need to know the meaning of, it's this one right here. Propitiation. So it's used one other time by John. It's used four times in total in the New Testament. One other time by John, earlier in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 2. So let's look, just flip back a page, let's look, and in order to understand his use of the word in verse 2, we'll we'll have to start with chapter 2, verse 1. So here's what John says in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We know what sin is, don't we? I'm a self-proclaimed expert. Sin is going your own way and not God's way. Sin is disobeying God. Sin is not caring about God. Sin is being indifferent to God. Sin is ignoring God. And according to chapter 2, verse 1, one of the reasons John writes this letter is so that his readers will not sin. John wants his readers to take sin seriously. It's interesting, as you read this first letter of John, you see that it's obviously about the love of God, but probably second to the love of God is how serious sin is. Now, if you don't understand one, you won't understand the other. That's one implication of that. If you read through 1 John, he says here, I'm writing so that you won't keep sinning. And if you read 1 John, it's very clear how serious he takes sin. So quickly, let me give you a sampling of how John talks about sin in this letter. I'll just give you three verses. 1 John 3, 6. Tell me if this sounds serious when it comes to sin. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Is that serious? In other words, if I keep on sinning, I may not be a Christian. That's what that sounds like. That's what that sounds like. We've studied this letter together. As you read through the letter, we come to find out that John means that if you continue to sin and sin and sin and you're not turning and you're not turning and you're not turning and you're not caring and you're not caring and you're not caring, you may not be a Christian. It doesn't mean if you ever sin again, you're probably not a Christian. But you see the way he writes it? 
Now, you've got to do some digging and really read his letter to get to the bottom of it. He writes in such a way to shock you. Hey, if you just keep on sinning, newsflash is how he writes it. You may not be a Christian. That's a very serious way to talk about sin. He says something similar in 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him. Do you say that? I say that. I know him. I know Jesus. I, by the grace of God, I know God. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's very serious. And then finally, 1 John 3, 8. You thought those were serious. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. You see how he writes? Whoever keeps on sinning, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. If you keep on sinning, you may be of Satan. If you keep on sinning, you may be of the devil. That's very serious. And so he writes here in chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Stop sinning, he's saying. But then, here's the verse we really want to get to. But then, right away, he says this in verse 2. But if anyone does sin, whew, that's how you should be feeling when you get to the second verse. He's saying all these terrible things about sin. And as you're reading through them, you're like, I think that describes me. Like, I think I make a pattern of sinning. I think I may keep on sinning. I, 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 that seems to describe me, and this sounds terrible. And now he's telling me he's writing so that I will stop sinning. And I've read his letter like 20 times, and I'm still sinning. So his goal has not been accomplished. His, his purpose has not been accomplished. I'm, I'm still doing this. So, whew, when you read verse 2, but if anyone does sin, so this is me still, but if anyone does sin, we have, and here's his good news, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate just means someone who's for you. That's a very simple definition, someone who's for you. Like an advocate goes to bat for you. An advocate defends you. An advocate protects you. An advocate guards you. An advocate stands up for you. An advocate stands between you and harm. That's what an advocate is. An advocate is for you. They're in your corner fighting for you. So for those of you who do keep on sinning, you have an advocate in heaven and it's Jesus. Now, if we're, if we're picking advocates, that's who I'm picking. That's really good news. That's the advocate that we want. I hope if you could pick an advocate, you don't pick me or something. Or your mom or your dad. 
or that great uncle or your sweet grandmother or that elder in your church or your neighbor who's so godly. Look, the one you want is an advocate. You want him to be in heaven before God. You want it to be Jesus. So, but, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And, and, and how is he advocating? How is he for us? And here's our word again. He is the propitiation. Same word. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is, that big word, the propitiation for our sins. So here's what propitiation is. Propitiation is a wrath-removing sacrifice. To propitiate is to protect from wrath, to deter wrath, to absorb wrath on behalf of someone else. This is something a good advocate would do. And propitiation, the act of propitiating, a propitiation is a wrath-removing sacrifice. So, so here's the deal. God is angry about sin. God is angry about sin. Think of sin that makes you angry. Not all sin makes you angry. I know that. But there is some sin that makes you angry. The more of it, the better, by the way. So think of sin that, that makes you angry. Sexual assault. The abuse of a child. Adultery, whatever it is, gossip, slander, whatever it is. Think of that sin that makes you angry. God is angry over all sin. Every bit of it. Even the ones you think are small. Or minor. Or little. It's all infinitely offensive to God. And what the Bible teaches. Is that that anger that God has towards sin. Is a right anger. It's a righteous anger. Some of you will remember I do. After the September 11th attacks on our country. Soon after that. George W. Bush, who was not at all times a very popular president, but he was his most popular. He was his most popular when soon after those 9-11 attacks, he demonstrated and declared his anger over what had happened and vowed to pour out America's wrath. I think he even used those words. He vowed to pour out America's wrath on the terrorists who were responsible. And he was extremely popular at that time because everybody was angry about that. Everybody could point at that and say, that's wicked, that's evil, that's wrong, that deserves wrath. 
Okay, God looks at all sin that way. This is what the Bible teaches. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. It deserves death. Life to be snuffed out like that. So God is that angry over sin. And so that angry that kindles in God, it pours out in wrath. Wrath is the pouring out of God's anger. God doesn't just keep his, he doesn't just, he's not angry, just boiled up. But that anger actually boils over into an activity. And that activity is his righteous anger boiling over into righteous wrath. So God is angry at all sin. And God's wrath will be poured out on all sin. All sin must be punished. So propitiation means the removal of God's wrath against sinners through the death of Jesus. So here is God righteously angry at my sin. And he will, when I die, pour out his wrath on me. And I've come to believe I would deserve every ounce of it. Every ounce of it. But Jesus has come between. And Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us. You see what was happening on the cross is that Jesus was bearing the wrath of God. Not primarily the wrath of Pilate. Not primarily the wrath of those angry Jews. Not primarily the wrath of those crying out crucify him and the Gentiles and all the rest. But primarily he was enduring the righteous wrath of God. So God's love, think about this. This is the greatest story. God's love satisfies his own demand for justice. Justice must be served. Justice must be paid. And God comes and says, I will pay it. A sacrifice is provided in our place to absorb the wrath of God. The wrath of God is awful because sin is awful. It's really not good logic. And it's certainly not biblical logic to do what many of us do, and I'm sure I've done it, and that is to read about the wrath of God. I mean, just as I'm describing it, some of you are getting uncomfortable. Of course. And there are certain places that we could go in the Bible, certain books of the Bible even. And we could read about the wrath of God being poured out in the past and how it will be poured out in the future, and it can make us very uncomfortable. And what many people are tempted to do at that point is to see how awful this wrath of God is and to see it as an overreaction because sin is not that bad. And you're missing the whole point of God's wrath. 
the purpose of God's wrath is to demonstrate how awful sin is. So there's two different ways to connect the dots. We could read about how awful the wrath of God is and say, but I know that sin is not that bad, so that's an overreaction. Or we read how awful the wrath of God is and say, I don't get how awful sin is. Sin is that awful. It's that bad. It's that wicked. It's that wrong. To be indifferent to God, to ignore God, to have the audacity to disobey God, to go my own way over and over again, to think that I know better, to put myself in the place of God. It's as bad as bad gets. And it's deserving of God's wrath. God did not merely remove his wrath from us. He spent it on Jesus. He poured it out. He poured it out. Jesus knew that was coming, by the way. Remember Jesus in his prayer in the garden? He describes God's wrath as a cup. And he's pleading with God the Father in the garden, is there any other way? What does it take for God to almost buckle? There's God in the garden. Is there any other way? He knew the wrath of God would be poured out on him. Do I need to drink this cup? Do you remember his words? He was resolved. Dad didn't have to talk him into it. They were resolved. The plan was. And then Jesus said, not my will. Your will. This must be done. And so he drank that cup. The cup of God's wrath. Every last drop. The dregs. Why? I know there's a lot of answers to that question. But let me tell you one answer made explicitly in Scripture because of His great love for us. God demonstrates His own love for us in this. We're still sinners. They never acts together, hadn't figured it out, hadn't stopped, hadn't turned. Christ died for us. And so John will go on to say things in 1 John 3, 1, like see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And in 1 John 4, 8, he says God is love. And then in verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's a description of Christians. We have, he says, we, I hope many of you, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. What, what is he talking about? We have come to know and believe the propitiation for our sins in Jesus. He is a wrath-removing sacrifice. That God has demonstrated his love by sending his son into the world, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, to die 
for his people. We, 1 John 4, 16, have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's what happens when you become a Christian. That's what happens when you become born again. You have come to know the love that God has for you. And yesterday you didn't. You weren't born that way. But we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. If you're here this morning, that's funny, because you're all here this morning. <laughs> Strange thing to say. You're here this morning. Have you, let me ask yourself this question. Are you in that sentence? Are you in that we? Have you come to know and believe the love that God has for you? If you have, praise God. He's opened your eyes and opened your ears and opened your heart and opened your mind. And there is no greater gift. If you haven't, my prayer would be that even now, it would be my humble prayer that God would use this sermon. That through this sermon, even this morning, you would come to know the love that God has for you. But not just know it, believe it. That you would come to know and believe, young and old here right now. That right now you would come to know and believe God's love for you through the sending of his son Jesus to give himself up as a sacrifice to bear the wrath of God in your place, to be a propitiation. John 3.36 makes a promise. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but, and listen, the wrath of God remains on him. Because there's no propitiation. So if you believe in the Son, if you've come to know and believe in the Son, you have eternal life. But if you do not come to know and believe in the Son, you do not have eternal life. John 3 says, actually, the wrath of God still remains on you. The wrath of God has not been removed. Why has it not been removed? There's no propitiation. So come now and know and believe in the propitiation that Jesus has provided for you. And turn to him. Believe in Jesus. The greatest problem we face as human beings is the wrath of God upon us. There's no greater problem. A missing paycheck is nothing compared to that. That broken relationship is nothing compared to that. Your dysfunctional family is nothing compared to that. Nothing. The greatest problem you and I face is our sin and the righteous wrath of God that remains on us apart from Christ. So back to Luke 2, 1 through 7, you see that this is the beginning of the greatest love story ever told. That's the beginning of the greatest love story ever told. The story of God who loves His people 
to the point of sending his only son to rescue them from their sin. The nativity takes place in the shadow of the cross. This special love of God, please remember, is undeserved. It is uncaused. And it is uninfluenced by you. The good news is that God does not love me because of something good in me. God loves me because he is good. Isn't that good news? Because whatever good thing there might be in me that he loves, I'm confident I won't be there for long. So if it is based on me and something good in me, I think I'm in trouble. But if it's based on the goodness and love of God, that is good news. You can understand this, those of you who have children. You love your children just because you love your children. You don't love your children because of, you know, if your children come to you and say, why do you love me? I hope you don't start listing off reasons. That's a really bad answer. Why do you love me? Well, I just, I love your hair. You just have, you got great hair. And your person, if you start listing things off, the problem is, if those things go away, well, do you not love them anymore? Those are things you love about them. But parents, with your kids, you know this. You love your kids because you love your kids. I mean, you're enslaved to it. It's not even a choice. It's just, it's just magical. It's just there. You didn't put it there. It just shows up. This is God's love for his children. It's not dependent on what you've done. And it's certainly not dependent on what you do and what you will do. In other words, it's impossible. It is impossible for you to be separated from God's love. So I'll close with Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Stress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Will those separate us from God's love? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is reason to celebrate, which we're doing this month during Advent. And we really do every week during our time of communion. We celebrate, we remember, we proclaim the death of Jesus. This propitiation, this wrath-bearing sacrifice. That God would come and take the punishment and penalty that I deserve. If you're here this morning and visiting, you're invited to take communion with us. If you're a Christian, if you are a believer... 
that has turned from sin and placed your faith in Jesus. And if you are a part of a local church, whether it's this one or another one that faithfully proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that isn't you, we'd ask you to stay seated and wait until you are a believer. If that is you, then you're invited to take communion with us today. We'd love to share this meal with you. We'll have some leaders up front who will serve and everybody's going to empty into the center aisle and come forward and we'll give you bread and juice. And then if you'd return to your seat by way of the outer aisle and then wait and we'll take the bread and juice together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world so that we might live through him. Thank you for sending your only son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that that humble beginning in that stable or cave, wherever it was, where there was a manger in the dirt, surrounded by animals. Thank you that that humble beginning did not have a humble end. that you, Jesus, have conquered the greatest enemy and the greatest enemies that we might live through you. So we follow you, Jesus. We love you. You are our king. And we give you all praise, glory, and honor. And remember now your greatest battlefield where you conquered sin, Satan, and death through your own death in our place that we might become the righteousness of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.